Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We will have the three martinis for you today. Good, bad, and crazy. But we're going to start today by remembering 19 years since the horrific terrorist attacks of 9-11, World Trade Center, Pentagon, Flight 93, which crashed, of course, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It was headed to the nation's capital, but the heroes on board made sure that there were no more casualties in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Jim, you and I remember it well, obviously. We were fairly young professionals at that time, and I it just strikes me that those who now have the foggiest memory of 9-11 were about the same age we were then. Uh, maybe a few years younger, two, three years younger. But uh, it's just a, a reminder of how quickly time goes and how important it is to have this uh, remembrance year after year, not only for those of us who remember it vividly, but also for those who don't. Uh, you and I both have kids that uh, obviously were born after that time, and it's important that uh, we start to to tell that story. And one of the things, even though we've been doing this podcast for a number of years, is that I don't think we've ever explained what our 9-11-2001 was like. I'll go first and briefly here. That weekend, it was a Tuesday, uh, 9-11-2001, that weekend before I had been back at Hillsdale, I'd graduated a few years earlier, uh, there was a, a seminar starting that weekend about World War II. And the reason I went back was because Stephen Ambrose, the noted World War II historian, was one of the speakers at that series. <laughs> and so he packed out the field house. And on September 9th, 2001, Stephen Ambrose went on at length about how the 20th century was the century of warfare and the 21st would not be a century of warfare and would be a century of scientific discovery uh, where all our diseases would hopefully be cured. And less than 36 hours later, uh, he was proven wrong. I was bleary-eyed the next day as I went back to work after catching a flight out of Detroit that morning. And then... Uh, the next morning, I was working a later schedule, woke up to see um, the Twin Towers smoldering. They hadn't collapsed yet, but uh, and then the Pentagon also being hit that morning. And the, the image that will always stick with me, Jim, from that day, two of them really, one is getting into work. And the first thing I saw was the people in lower Manhattan covered with ash, which is just an apocalyptic scene that I can never forget. And then secondly, finally leaving late, late, late that night crossing the Roosevelt Bridge out of Washington into Arlington and still being able to see the fires at the Pentagon glowing up in the night sky. It's truly vivid, and uh, not only don't we forget, we never should forget. That's uh, very well put there, Greg. Uh, I don't know if I've ever told you that I, the, I was actually in New York City the day before. Uh, I was living in Washington, D.C. I was working for a wire service, but I had really wanted to work for a conservative magazine or some conservative publication. And so I had scheduled meetings with my now colleague, Jay Nordlinger, uh, as well as Robert George of the New York Post. I had been up uh, visiting my parents. I lived in a small town in New Jersey called Metuchen back then. Uh, went into the city that day, had my meetings, uh, didn't get any job you know, prospects out of it, but had you know nice, uh, nice chats with those two gentlemen. I remember heading into Penn Station to take the train back to New Jersey and then later that evening to take a train back to Washington, D.C., looking up Monday, September 10th in the afternoon was a rainy day. And I looked towards the south 
and the twin towers, the top floors were actually obscured by the rain clouds. You, you couldn't see the very top of it. Uh, and little did I know that that was the last day that they would be standing intact. Um, I went to my job the morning of September 11th. Uh, as I got to work, the, the attacks must have started because our phones were ringing off the hook. And there was a phone message from my wife saying, just very quick, saying, hey, a plane hit the World Trade Center. I got to check, you know, check on this. Be careful or something like that. And I had seen a picture when I was a kid of a like tiny propeller plane that had flown in between the two towers, uh, probably back in the late 70s or 80s or something like that. And I figured it was something like that. Some idiot pilot was trying to do a stunt and came close. There was only one other reporter in the office at that point. We had cable news on, and this must have been right around the time the plane had hit the Pentagon, because the first reports coming into the news stations were that the National Mall was on fire. Now, our office was uh, in the National Press Building. We were, you know, two blocks from the White House, just a few blocks away from the, the mall. Another reporter came in and we were like, okay, that sounds really weird. And we're close enough to check this out for ourselves. As far as we know, this is a working day. We are, we are job, we are reporters, we are in Washington, something big is going on. At this point, the fact that it's multiple crashes indicates that this is not some random accident, this is terrorism. So we decide to go down and see if we can figure out if the mall really is on fire and if not, what the heck is going on. And we walk out the front of the National Press Building. At that point in the morning, you still had tour buses going around. You still had people walking down the street. It had not registered on the general public that something really terrifying was happening in New York City and that something had just happened across the river in Northern Virginia. And we just, I, I, at first I thought this was my former colleague, David Enrich. It, I think it was another one, Craig, because I talked about David Enrich in, you know, in a series of tweets a year or two ago. And Dave Enrich was like, no, that wasn't me. <laughs> so you, you end up forgetting which coworkers were there with you. But we just kind of looked at each other and we realized all these people have no idea that something has just happened. These are the last moments of normalcy for a whole bunch of people, because at some point, uh, cell phones were a little less ubiquitous back then, but at some point people are going to hear something terrible has happened and this is not a normal day. We start going towards it. We get close enough to the mall. And at this point, you're starting to hear sirens everywhere. Uh, people are putting flashing lights on their dashboards. And I assume everybody in the police, everybody uh, with the FBI, every government security agency is probably now going to, you know, either literal DEFCON 1 or metaphorical DEFCON 1. And by the time we get down there, we can tell it's not the mole and on, is on fire, but something is generating a hell of a lot of smoke. And you don't have to be a geographical genius to figure out, I think that's the Pentagon. Uh, the Pentagon itself was not visible from where we were, but you can tell that's, that's what's there. I tried going back to the National Press Building. At this point, the federal government has decided, send all the federal government workers home. The police are attempting to evacuate downtown Washington. It is not going well. Uh, it, is a, it was a hard lesson that day that if, God forbid, there is some other terror attack, God forbid, chemical weapons or, or something like that, Washington, D.C. will never be evacuated smoothly, quickly or easily. Um, this, this, you, this, everybody's trying to leave at once. The, the, every street is a parking lot. And every, I'm just trying to get back to the office to write about what I have seen. And I can't get there <laughs> because the police keep shutting down streets and saying, no, no, you got to go two more blocks over that way. Uh, I end up going near the White House, which in retrospect was not a wise decision since apparently that fourth plane was headed towards the White House. There are a few police officers who are doing like kind of impromptu press conferences. 
Uh, and I think what they had remembered that this, this was, you know, the, they, they basically they were on the D.C. police equivalent of DEFCON 1. Uh, every single officer was being activated and all that stuff. Um, I finally got back to the National Press Building after taking all kinds of various detours and trying to explain to cops, trying to shut down streets that I needed to get back to work. I go into the front build lobby of the uh, National Press Building, and they always had six televisions set to the news channels, and all of them are showing the exact same thing. And I look, I walk in, and the cry, I just see smoke and, and a crater, and the cryon saying both World Trade Center towers have been destroyed. And I just felt like a sledgehammer had hit me in the gut because it was this thing that you used, you expected to see in a, a sci-fi movie or alien invasion. It was just this utterly impossible thing. And I remember Brit Hume's voice, it must have been the Fox News had the, the audio, and Brit Hume was like, this is a country that really needs to hear from its president right now. And I, you know, I don't think he was really, you know, furious at President George W. Bush. But at that point, this was, you know, in, I think he was at the time where he was on the plane and had not been able to give his full statement. And it was just this surreal sense that you had just stepped into uh, a terrible disaster movie, something out of Independence Day, something out of something that wasn't real. Uh, I finally got past the front desk guy. And then this, the next uh, building security guard said, the building is evacuated. You can't go in. And then my workday was done. There was just no way that I was going to be able to get into it. And we were at the point of, we were the kind of system where you had to be on a certain computer uh, to send in your articles and stuff. Well, now I have to get home. The, wash, the, the metro is shut down because I think they're afraid of additional attacks on the metro. So I had to walk home. And, you know, people are uh, reacting. People have turned up their radios. At this point, every parent in the city is trying to get home to their kid's school as quickly as possible. And then I get home. And my wife is not home yet. And I just begin calling anybody I know who could have been in New York City. And thank God, I, I was among the lucky ones. A bunch of people who were in New York City, who worked in New York City, who lived in New York City, who were thankfully not among the victims, although many of them had had close calls. One of my friends was driving by the Pentagon when the Pentagon got hit. One of them was on the DC Metro, um, probably came through the, met the Pentagon Metro station within a few minutes. And in what had been a very tumultuous year, Greg, uh, for about two weeks, I was the Pentagon correspondent for the non-government version of Stars and Stripes. And then they concluded they didn't have the money to keep me there. And I was very, very angry that I was not going to be in a job that was going to have me in the Pentagon in the year 2001. Sometimes life turns, things that look very wrong in life turn out to be the right thing in retrospect. Um, I think the best moment of my day on what was obviously an exceptionally dark day was just hearing the doorknob of my wife's key going into the keyhole and knowing she was okay. As I said, this is pre-cell phones. This is before you know everybody could text in that they were okay and for a whole bunch of phone lines were, were down anyway. As, as you can tell from all this, dear listeners, you know, it's been 19 years and I remember it like it was yesterday. And my suspicion is hearing all this has probably made you think of your memories of that day. I think we're going to feel this way until the day we die. And the fact that every year it gets a little bit more normal is a good sign. It is a good sign that we generally don't spend much time thinking about terrorism these days. And we're not as worried about somebody crashing a plane or trying to blow us up. But on the other hand, I think those of us who live through it in one form or fashion are probably always going to be forever changed by that day. And as, as much as previous generations were, you know, permanently affected by the assassination of JFK or Pearl Harbor or other events like that. Jim, very well stated. And uh, I remember the gridlock. Uh, I did Metro in that day. And uh, 
the two or three blocks to our office, which was in Washington, D.C. at that time, uh, absolutely the streets completely jammed. And most people didn't even have their cars on anymore. It was just bumper to bumper throughout the intersections with no engines on. It was mm. could not be more surreal, could not be more surreal. And, you know, obviously our country took a massive gut punch that day. And it was three days later that we had the national prayer service at the National Cathedral. And then later that day, President Bush flew up to New York, met with uh, the families, obviously, those of the, the lost, those still missing, many of them at that time. And of course, he thanked the first responders, who are the ones we really should be remembering and their stories uh, today, as well as those who were lost that day, their heroism, the health problems many of them are still having, uh, who dug through that rubble for days and weeks on end. Uh, but it was on that Friday afternoon that I feel like America really picked itself up, kind of dusted itself off. And it was this moment that many of you have heard many times, President Bush with the bullhorn at Ground Zero. I want you all to know that America today America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! Jim, it's emotional now listening to that. It's almost impossible to put into words what that moment meant 19 years ago. Indeed. Uh, and while, you know, we're, we, we face a whole different uh, plate full of problems in our country right now, but it is kind of marvel, you know, kind of marvel the fact that how long has it been before this anniversary? You thought about Al-Qaeda. How long has it been since you really thought about ISIS? The bad news is evil is in this world and will always exist. The good news is it can be defeated and it can be left on the ash heap of history. Uh, also, for those wondering about our 9-11 remembrance, uh, Osama bin Laden could not be reached for comment. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter Podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms, and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter Podcast. Subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, our three martinis certainly pale in comparison to the uh, events of 9-11 and, uh, and, and the importance of, of honoring those who died that day and honoring those who served heroically that day and the days following. But uh, let's go through our three martinis briefly today, starting with our good martini, Jim. Uh, big battleground state is Pennsylvania. Well, the Democrats certainly know that. Kamala Harris talking about how we need to preserve the fracking jobs in Pennsylvania. Not sure if she's necessarily worried about the ones in the Dakotas or Texas, but uh, who knows. Uh, but the GOP doing a pretty good job of voter registration in Pennsylvania. According to Politico, the GOP has added almost 198,000 registered voters to the books compared to this time four years ago, whereas Democrats have gained an extra 29,000. 
Democrats still outnumber Republicans statewide. Um, but obviously, that's a huge difference. The Democrats are poo-pooing it by saying these are really just former Democrats who haven't voted Democratic in a long time. They've been voting Republican. Now they've just made it official. So they say they're not too worried. They also point out that uh, in a lot of the swing states, including Pennsylvania, uh, the number of people requesting ballots already uh, from a Democratic perspective seems to be uh, far above those on the Republican side. So, Jim, what do you make of the shoe leather being uh, performed by the GOP in Pennsylvania? Yeah, it's interesting. It aligns with something I, I observed in today's morning jolt that I'll get to in a second. But the first thing is, if you want to say, oh, these are, you know, long since, you know, these are folks who stopped being Democrats a long time ago, and they've been voting Republican for many cycles, and they're just now getting around to registering as Republicans. Okay, but that probably means you're not getting them this cycle, now, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, if they're going through the, the, the rigmarole of rechanging their party registration, that probably is an indication that they had that the transition um, that, you know, we talk about Reagan Democrats, that these this group of, de of voters probably, you know, if you don't want to call them Trump Democrats because they're not registered Democrats anymore, fine. But he has added Democrats. Now, he may have uh, not done as well amongst some folks who usually voted Republican in the suburbs and places like Bucks County and places like that. But I don't think you can easily dismiss this. And the second, you know, as, as you know, oh, no big deal. Look, if you're a political party, you want to have as many people in your coalition as possible. And if you're the Democratic Party of Pennsylvania, you don't want to, you know, just kind of go, Psh, oh, no big deal to the white working class, particularly in the middle of the state. Now, the second thing that kind of jumps out is that in discussion of the state of Nevada earlier this year, it was Amy Walter of Cook Political Report, who actually a couple of days ago had noted that, look, because of the pandemic, the traditional measures of registering people to vote and getting out the vote are just not going to be on the table. They just can't do them in a safe way they used to. And for the particularly the trade unions out in uh uh, in Nevada, you know, getting registering people to vote outside the casinos was always a big part of what they did each year. Um, it is easy to reach people when they're all together in large groups, whether it's at the casinos or in some other entertainment venue in the state. They haven't been able to do that for the past six months. Now, not everybody's convinced this is going to be a huge or decisive factor in Nevada. But if you're a Democrat, it's one more X factor. It's something you're not quite sure about your get out the vote operations because you haven't been able to do all the things that are traditionally part of your efforts to get people to come out and vote. Um, I, I don't know if this will be enough to swing the state of uh, Pennsylvania. I think it's worth noting that, you know, Biden is leading most of these polls, but not by an overwhelming amount. Uh, Berenson Strategy Group has Biden up by three. Um, there are other ones, you know, Morning Consult has Biden up by four. Change Research has Biden up by five. Um, Susquehanna had Biden up by two. This is all, you know, early September. You know, that's not a huge lead. If you're, you know, considering the margin of victory that Trump had last time in Pennsylvania, so far Biden does not, ha has not put the state of Pennsylvania out of reach. Does this mean, you know, Trump's got it? No, but it's one of those things where if you're a Democrat, this is kind of where things were. And Trump had just enough voters in just enough places to win what turned out to be a really key state in 2016. Uh, there are a few others that have bigger uh, Biden leads, including Marist College, which puts them at eight, nine points. But uh, I think you can't quite put the Keystone State in the Democratic pile. And this idea of white working class voters shifting to the Republicans probably should be making Democrats sleeping unsoundly in the nights to come, Greg. Jim, let's talk about our bad martini now. And this seems to be a pattern 
among uh, Democrats, and I, I think most of these people are Democrats, but let's talk about the new Justice Department report about the conduct of members of Robert Mueller's special counsel team. Your colleague, Mary McCardle, has the story. More than two dozen phones belonging to members of special counsel Robert Mueller's team were wiped clean of data before the Justice Department's inspector general could comb them for records, the DOJ said in records released on Thursday. At least 27 cell phones were wiped of data before the DOJ inspector general could review them, some reset to factory settings, and some wiped, quote-unquote, accidentally after the wrong password was entered too many times, according to 87 pages of DOJ records. Including mobile phones that were reassigned, the special counsel's office wiped a total of 31 phones. Here's my favorite one, though. A phone belonging to assistant special counsel James Quarles wiped itself without intervention from him, according (laughs) to DOJ records. Andrew Weissman, top prosecutor on Mueller's team, accidentally wiped his cell phone, causing the data to be lost. And there's other names in here as well. So, Jim, I don't know if we're going to get Bob Mueller in front of a microphone suggesting that it was wiped with a cloth, a la Hillary Clinton in 2016, but... uh, Nobody ever paid a price for that, so why not wipe a few more? Darn you, Skynet. (laughs) Don't you hate it when phones wipe themselves? The only explanation I'm going to observe there is when they say if you put in the wrong password too many times, the idea that it erases itself. How many people have gotten their password on the third try? Sweating bullets. (laughs) Knowingly. And secondly, do you remember when Mueller did his appearances before Congress and everybody's like, he wasn't quite Biden levels, but he was um, a little slower and and maybe not quite as sharp as people come to expect from the guy they remember heading up the FBI during the Bush administration. If you said to me, uh, look, Bob Mueller got confused. He put in the wrong password more than three times. Okay, that excuse, I believe. Everybody else, 32 people. Really? Really? All of them just happened to do it by themselves? Yeah, yeah. These are all veteran federal prosecutors. These are all veteran. They all understand the importance of keeping records, and they all understand the uh, value of, look, if you're working for the government on a government case, all of your communications, including your text, your emails, anything related to work is, is required to be kept for official records, particularly if the inspector general is concerned that something wrong, you know, something inappropriate happened. And they all happen to erase themselves. Boy, what are the odds? And what do you think the consequences of this are going to be? I'm guessing limited to none. I was going to say, at this point, Greg, they're probably shocked we're talking about it. Because that's (laughs) the toughest consequence they're going to encounter from all this. Some, Some really tough barbs from you and I. We are living in difficult times where people fear having thought-provoking conversations about pressing issues. And although we're in the midst of an information explosion, there are a lot of forces aiming to distort what's true. I created The Bill Walton Show to provide a forum for in-depth, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Together, we aim to understand what America is thinking, experiencing, and questioning. Please join me at thebillwaltonshow.com to explore what's true, what's right, and what's next. Speaking of uh, really bad explanations, let's go to our crazy martini now. We've talked at length about uh, Joe Biden no longer having his mental fastball. Bob Mueller, I guess, doesn't either based on his congressional testimony. But uh, Joe Biden won't do any interviews that aren't powder puff interviews. And when he does do interviews, it seems that sometimes he knows the questions ahead of time and even has the answers in front of him ahead of time. 
So T.J. Ducklow is a spokesman for the Biden campaign. It's hard for me to say that without thinking of T.J. Duckett, who was a really good fullback for Michigan State and later for the Falcons. If you were in fantasy football, he was pretty good there for a while. Brett Baer asked him a series of questions, none of which really were answered very well. But here's the answer to, does Joe Biden use a teleprompter uh, in Q&A sessions? This is amazing. Has Joe Biden ever used a teleprompter during local interviews or to answer Q&A with supporters? Brett, we are not going to engage. This is, this is straight from the Trump campaign. Well, yeah, talking they're points. using and, it. And what it does, and what it does, Brett, is it's trying to distract the American people. I'm just, from, they're from, using from it. They the talk pand- about it every day. Can you what, say yes or no? That's because they talk about it every day, Brett, because they don't have a coherent strategy. Uh, well, you have strategy. an answer. Yes or no. Brett, they talk about it every day because they don't have a coherent argument for why Donald Trump deserves re-election, deserves four more years. We know that he lied to the American people. We know that he has not uh, shown leadership during this crisis, and they are desperate to throw anything they can against the wall to try to distract from that fact. I understand, but you can't answer the question. Brett, I am not going to allow okay. the Trump campaign to funnel their questions through Fox News and get me to respond to that. <laughs> Jim, even if he does think it's Trump campaign propaganda, there's a very simple way to answer the question and dispel it if, in fact, it is not true. Here, let me show you how easy this is. Jim, do you go around kicking puppies and punching small children? Well, I'm not going to answer. I'm going to dignify that with you. The only who gets that kind of answer is people who punch children and kick puppies. By the way, it's duck low. It's not duck it. Um, but I can understand how you'd, you'd have that uh, confusion there, Greg, because he was trying to juke and trying to duck and trying to run around in circles, and he was ultimately tackled behind the line of scrimmage. So I can understand why you'd make that uh, that parallel there. Um, so, Greg, here's the thing. I, it's appropriate we're having this conversation on September 11th because roughly four years ago at this time, Hillary Clinton had been giving her speeches. She'd been doing a, a you know pretty vigorous campaign schedule, particularly when you look at what Biden has done so far this year. And she was coughing. She had her moments of of really you know pretty intense coughing fits, and she was having trouble with her voice. And you know both the public say opportunistic folks in the Trump campaign, and just generally folks said, "Oh my God, is she sick? What's going on there?" Um, and the Trump campaign, you know, kind of you know, this, you know is, is can Hillary handle the job? You know. And the Hillary Clinton campaign was, no, this is, she has nothing wrong with her. She's in perfect. She's just been giving a lot of speeches. She just needs to uh, rest her voice. This is, you know, the typical wear and tear of the campaign. You're shaking a lot of hands. If you do a lot of traveling, you meet a lot of people, your odds of picking up some cold or some bug are are, uh, greatly increased. And then there was the 9-11 ceremony in New York City, and she fell. And most of us all remember this. And of course, it was only because of somebody having their cell phone and recording that. And whatever else you think of Hillary Clinton, you have I, I, you saw that. You should be concerned. That was that was she was weirdly stiff. There they was something really something was terribly wrong with her at that moment. Later on, the campaign came out and said, "Oh, she's had walking pneumonia for several weeks." So this meant that all of the past assurances about Hillary Clinton's health were a lie. That, that basically they, you know, and if, here's the thing, the great irony is, is if they said, you know, she's going to take a few days off the trail. She's got a, uh, she's got walking pneumonia. All right. This doesn't mean she's at death's door. Uh, I think it's safe to say that the, you know, 9-11 ceremony, you know, having a, an incident like that is much worse for the campaign than, than having to postpone on certain events or something like that. Whatever else you think it is safe to say that in 2016, the Democratic presidential nominee, the campaign was not honest about the circumstances of the nominee's health. Fast forward four years. It is Joe Biden who turns 78 shortly after the election. I hope Joe Biden is in good health. He certainly is capable of giving a speech for about 20, 25 minutes and uh, seeming okay during that. I I think anybody who's watched him in all these debates, though, would say, look, 
he's he's lost a step. He's he's not who he used to be. He's not the same guy we were watching debate Paul Ryan back in 2012. I hope he's fine. I hope he's well. The fact I but on the corner I keep noting each day each day I get some uh, message from the Biden press list that says there are no further events for today and the only event on his schedule is a virtual fundraiser and things like that. By and large, Biden is doing about one event every two days. That's weird. That's a really light schedule for somebody campaigning in September. Yeah, I, you know, he's ahead. He doesn't have to do a ton of events. There's a coronavirus pandemic going on. They want to limit how they expose him. Okay, I get all that. But boy, you know, my fear is Biden will get elected and we will find out, oh, he's had X. And I don't know what the X condition is. I don't know if there's something wrong with him. I hope he's fine. But again, if he is indeed using a teleprompter for routine interviews with with local press people, that is a glaringly ominous sign. And the people around him are not being honest with him. And when T.J. Ducklow goes on Fox News and gets this question, there's a very simple answer we're looking for. No, Joe Biden does not use a teleprompter when he's doing television interviews. We really would like that to be honest. If it's a lie, that doesn't do us any good either. But if, if this is a possibility, then, then you know, something's wrong. I, I think you really probably are not ready for the duties of the presidency. Does Trump have his own issues? Hell yeah. But I think that, you know, my sneaking fear will be that shortly after the election has been safely won by Biden, all of a sudden he'll come forth, oh, hey, you know why he seemed kind of uh, having trouble with certain things? Because he's got, ex- you know, fill in the blank here. And we hid that from you before the election. Now that he's elected, we can talk about it. And oh, by the way, you know, Kamala Harris will take over in March or something like that. I don't know if it'll be that early, but it's it's a there's a sneaking suspicion that no, they have not been honest with us. And we are now in a um, deeply frustrating state of affairs where we all strongly suspect there's something wrong with Joe Biden. It could be, you know, mundane wrong problems with Joe Biden or it could be something more serious. And the campaign and the candidate are not leveling with us. Unbelievable. Yeah, pretty easy to answer that question. The fact that there was no yes or no there was very telling. Jim, have a very good weekend. We'll see you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thank you for being with us today in this special edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Thanks to all of those who served that day 19 years ago and continue to serve today. We'll see you again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.